It's the 29th of October, 2017, and this is episode 346 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Andreas Antonopoulos. Greetings. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Thanks for being here, everybody. So it's been a while since we've done an episode, and... <laughs> So I had a, a kind of wild series of events that led up to being evacuated as part of the Northern California fires. And I'm not going to stay on this for too long. And thanks to all the well wishes from everybody who has already reached out about that. Uh, I am fine. We are fine. It was a very interesting couple of weeks spending time in a hotel room with our dog and cats. But everybody is good. And uh, it was an interesting experiment where we even let our rabbits out. And now we have rabbits that we can't get back in because they now live in the property. This does relate to Bitcoin, everybody. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So it, it does relate to Bitcoin in just in that, like taking it back to the very beginning of when we started doing this show, I consider myself to be a lowercase l libertarian. And this is actually this fire that happened up here recently is the exact reason why I have kind of had that position for about 15 or 20 years at this point. Wait a minute, Adam. The word libertarian is fraught with a lot of connotations in people's minds. And probably not everybody understands that word in the way that you mean it. So why don't you explain like what that means to you instead of taking the shortcut? Because I know you wouldn't use that word to describe yourself for a long time. Yeah. Why don't you just say what like briefly what that means to you? Fair enough. So when I say lowercase l libertarian, it's very akin to somebody saying that they're conservative or liberal, but without necessarily liking the Republicans or Democratic Party. There is technically a libertarian party, but it doesn't most of the time, in my view, embody what I consider libertarian principles. And so to me, when I say I'm a lowercase l libertarian, it means that fiscally I'm conservative. I think that the government should spend relatively small amounts of money on relatively boring things. And I'm socially liberal, which is that people should be able to do basically whatever they want, with the exception of things that negatively impact others in tangible, real ways that create victims. So when I say lowercase l, I mean, I'm not interested in the Libertarian Party, and I've never voted for the Libertarian Party, but I am interested in the concepts that I think make up the Libertarian philosophies. Stephanie, would you say that's right? I think that's a perfectly fine description. I've used that word to describe myself in the past, but nowadays I'm like more hesitant to use it because... A lot of people hear libertarian and they their mind goes to like conservative or, or alt-right even. Mm. And that's definitely not what I'm interested in. So, yeah, you know, the alt-right thing has been very interesting without getting too much into politics. Yeah, I mean, just everything has become so politicized. I totally get what you're saying, talking about labels. But yeah, that's basically what I mean is that people should be able to do what they want unless it comes at a direct cost and detriment to other people. Yeah, like live and let live. I think when you say like little trite phrases like that, like live and let live or live free or die is New Hampshire state motto or like harm none and do as thou will, right? Like it's hard to disagree with that. But in practice, a lot of people actually don't really agree with those statements. There could, you know, there's a lot of areas where people feel compelled to kind of control others and rule over others and things like that. And I think libertarians are generally more in favor of the individual being able to make their own choices as long as they're not hurting anyone else, like we said. And they just do whatever they want as long as they're not bothering or hurting anyone else. Right. It's the presumption of yes rather than no, right? Is that you should be able to do something unless there's explicitly a reason you shouldn't be able to do it. It's like Ayn Rand. It's not who's going to let me. It's who's going to stop me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it. 
So, Adam, has your recent experience with the uh, Californian wildfires led you to discover how to ICO Californian wildfires? <laughs> Actually, I think you could really make a lot of money doing uh, a biochar coin, which makes good use of these things. But no, circling back around to the point that I'd like to make here, there are multiple ways you can deal with problems, right? As we've talked about lots of times before, really the tactic that seems to work best is to fail fast, is to do something cheaply, try and figure out if it's going to work or not. And then if it's not going to work, well, you fail really fast. And so, yeah, there was you know a cost to doing that, but the cost wasn't very much compared to doing it for a long time and then figuring out that it was going to fail. In California, not just in California, but uh, on the West Coast, there used to be fires that would sweep through the pervasive forests every 10, 20 years, started by lightning, started by just sort of random events, um, and even sometimes started by uh, indigenous people. And those fires, because they happen so frequently, would not be able to actually catch the large trees on fire. Uh, essentially, there's something, there's a concept called ladder fuel. It's a buildup of bushes and leaf matter and kind of all of this stuff that make it so a fire can or cannot get up into the lower limbs of the big trees. And it's possible for trees to catch on fire, you know, just like a little fire around their trunk. That can happen. But the way the trees catastrophically catch on fire, where they actually burn all the way down, is when the whole forest is on fire and you have the ability for fire to go all the way up from the ground where it's burning up into the trees very easily because it's so kind of overcrowded. And in California, the thought has been for a long time that it was not necessarily unnatural to cut trees, but that the natural thing to do was to just let trees grow, while at the same time fighting every fire that started because we want to preserve life. We want to make it so these fires don't burn because they can be dangerous to people. So what this leads to is a strategy where any fire that is small enough to be put out is put out basically immediately. But then because the fires are not burning in that same way, the fuel that would otherwise be coming exhausted because they're used in these periodic fires instead build up and build up and build up and build up until you get those catastrophic fires where the firefighters go to stop them, but they can't stop them because there's so much fuel built up that it's, you know, it's like trying to put out a fire in an oil refinery. So basically, you need these controlled burns that burn off just the stuff at the very bottom, like the short trees and shrubs and leaves that are built up at the bottom and you need those kind of frequently, but they're really not very dangerous because the flames are not going to get up to the biggest, tallest trees. However, they're not letting those smaller fires occur. And so the debris is building up on the bottom and then that leads to bigger fires that can't even be put out. That's right. Yeah. And okay. that's been the situation in California for about 50 years now, actually. There was a strategy essentially that was put in place that basically said that any fire that, forget what time it was, but it's like by 10 a.m. the following day, the fire has to be put out. And so, again, it's like you can see how from a well-intentioned standpoint, it actually made a lot of sense at first. But now you have this problem where every year in California and other places, too, but California is particularly predominant, you hear about these catastrophic fires in different places. And it's because these different places are getting unlucky and a fire starts and you can't put it out. And now suddenly you have hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of acres that just go up in smoke. And it's a lot of times it's a very destructive burn because instead of the fire kind of rejuvenating the soil, it actually can burn so hot that it creates a glass layer on top that then is very difficult for anything kind of to grow back and it takes additional years before it can come back. Out where I live, we've had this problem and I you know, remember being on the bus at age you know, 12 or 13 going to school and seeing on the other side of the ridge a fire burning, the hill that now hasn't burned in about 20 years. And this fire was on the other side. And we have these, they get close all the time. But the, the relevant part here and where we get back to libertarianism is in Napa County, which is where I live, which is a, a big, big county um, with uh, lots of agricultural stuff going on and lots of wineries. 
Um, my family, 33 years ago, 34 years ago, did the last timber harvest that was legally done. And since then, it has been impossible to do it. And at the time that we did it, it was not something that made us popular. We had neighbors who were lying down in front of, you know, trucks and, you know, throwing nails onto our roads and stuff like that to try and stop people from, you know, going up. And people were lying about what we were doing, too, saying that we were, you know, clear cutting and all this other stuff. And in reality, if you look up at the hill now, even after this fire, like you can't tell that any trees were taken at any point in time from this. And there are actually more trees now than there really have been at any other point. So you start from the good intention and then you prevent small disasters. And by doing so, you then make it mandatory for large disasters to happen because nothing but a large disaster can actually be allowed to clean out the mess. And so this is a long way around from <laughs> taking us back to cryptocurrency, but we're just about there. So Bitcoin is like if the forest fire is going on all the time, <laughs> right? Like the only way that you survive in an environment that is nothing but forest fires is if you are fireproof. Because Bitcoin never had the advantage of anybody being like, oh, let's protect it. Let's, you know, make sure that small fires never happen. All those small fires happened. They happen all the time. And now big fires happen all the time, attacks constantly on the network, but it doesn't matter because it's become essentially hardened by this. And, and it's that, it's that process that brings us here. And so going just one step further, <laughs> what's going on with ICOs right now? I see that as being very much the same thing. It's subjecting itself to all the same forces that Bitcoin has, all of the same risks, small fires, big fires at a time when it's frankly much more difficult to be small. And that's exactly what it is, is rather than having this kind of like long term track record of stability and being able to come up against every threat. Now we're seeing kind of this whole process repeat, except instead of it being one community or one technology platform that's really learning the lessons from it, it's this entire disconnected community that all think that they have the right way to do it. And so we're seeing the same failures kind of pop up over and over again in really basic fashions like website failures and kind of basic security things. So that, that was kind of just, it, I was reminded in this whole experience that really what we're trying to do here is we're trying to make it so that we can fail fast, so that we can figure out what's real, what's not, and then so we can essentially move on. And once we figure out what's fireproof, then you use that. And, uh, and that's the process, is getting basically to the fireproof structures as quickly as possible as the fires rage all around us. I really like this analogy, Adam. I actually wrote an article back in 2013 which is up on Medium, called Failure is an Option. And use the same analogy of forest fires to discuss kind of the um, uh, global economic recession, um, global financial crisis, and the idea being that in a well-meaning effort to reduce the impacts of business cycles and by preventing businesses from failing small, you build up all of this misallocation of capital until eventually you get a catastrophic global crisis that burns through all of the businesses and takes the healthy ones as well as the unhealthy ones and the big ones as well as the small ones and the well-capitalized ones as well as the undercapitalized ones just because you weren't allowed to experience failure. So failure is part of capitalism. Failure is part of the business cycle. And if you don't have a recession, if you don't have an event that clears out the poorly structured businesses, then the well-structured ones can't differentiate. So they don't have advantage and eventually it builds up and builds up and builds up. And now I think several years later, four years after I wrote that article, 
all of this quantitative easing, all of these bailouts, all of this juicing the stock markets is leading to what is going to be a catastrophic wildfire in global markets, in my opinion. And I think a lot of even mainstream economists nowadays see that. So it's a similar analogy for different perspective. So we have it. My family has uh, continued to attempt to make it so that our property, even if other properties weren't hardened against fire, that ours was. And as part of that, we took maybe 3% of our property. And I, uh, for anybody who doesn't know where I live, I live in a, in a canyon where about 95% of our property is incredibly steep redwood forest that's very, very difficult to access. And so basically, we took a strip along one of our access roads, and we did what's called a shaded fuel break, which is where you actually go through and within a comprehensive area, you do the kind of uh, understory trimming and you take out a lot of that ladder fuel that's there. And it makes it so that even if a fire does come through there, it can be fought much more easily because you're not fighting all of this kind of available fuel that's there as well. And so these fires, as they were literally burning hundreds of thousands of acres here, came within about 100 feet of not our property, but like of the place where I actually live. And it was those shaded fuel breaks that allowed firefighters to start fighting the fire here where really very few other places they could. So it's, it's, a, it's a way to say that if you have disconnections within your system that are actually defensible, then that means that you can actually save a lot more than you, you could otherwise because the contagion can stop, right? So that's the problem with these systems is that everyone becomes interdependent on each other. And so any failure anywhere then causes essentially a, a cascading failure through the entire system. But if you have portions of the system that are strong, then those can at least be defended and you can potentially break the momentum there. I think that's the strategy that a lot of governments are attempting to take. They're attempting to create these firewalls where they can then stop contagion if it happens and keep it contained to these other areas where this entire area might be sacrificed, but we can stop it here and we can keep it from going systemically. But it's hard to do that. Fire breaks don't actually work most of the time. They only work if you have a confluence of things that actually work in your favor. So we got lucky. But again, it's like it really is a systemic issue. Moving forward within California, I really hope that we have more of a conversation. It seems like locally we are anyways about actually being serious about taking care of things when they're small as opposed to waiting until they get big. And it feels like that's where eventually we have to wind up in all of this quantitative easing and all of this kind of like global tie ourselves together and then jump off the cliff hoping that someone has a parachute. I like this comparison and it's nice to get a little bit more personal once in a while, but also the analogy is totally spot on. You need destruction to make way for better things. And if it doesn't happen, a disaster is going to be the result. That's even bigger than the little disasters that could have been, <laughs> could have helped avoid it. Very true. One final thing is that the fire has been uh, gone for about a week and uh, walking through, you know, we were repairing water systems and stuff like that. Uh, walking through, the forest has never looked better. <laughs> like everything but the big trees has been completely cleared out. And so it's like a park now where before it was like, oh, well, here's all these bushes and all this just random stuff. And it's like it's very messy and very kind of feels like a dark fairy tale type thing. But you have a fire go through there. Bam. Suddenly all the dead wood's gone. Suddenly everything that's kind of just in the way and not serving a purpose is gone. And the canopy opens up and you are able to, you know, actually see where new trees are going to grow. And it's going to be a competition for who can start fast. We see the same examples over and over and over again in kind of all of these things. And it's really just a question of where are you in the cycle? Are you to a point where you're still so new that there's where fuel buildup is completely irrelevant or are you letting it burn off or are you dealing with it as it comes or anyways? So you get the idea.
So I guess the kind of elephant in the room here is that I think the last time I checked, the all-time high price for Bitcoin is over $1,000 above where it was the last time we talked. So I think all-time high that I've seen is 6151 Is that the right price? Anybody know? That sounds about right. So price predictions, Bitcoin going to 10000 I thought we didn't do that on <laughs> the show. We don't do that on this show, but now we do whatever we want on this show is really what it comes down to. <laughs> we no longer need to differentiate by not talking about the price. I think it's... I don't know. I don't know if I think it's interesting. I think it's funny, right? Like, I just think it's, I've been so wrong about the price so constantly that I'm so totally over the idea that I can even be anything other than wrong. So I'm happy making predictions at this point with the caveat that I'll definitely be wrong. Well, I mean, in the same vein of what we were just talking about, do you think maybe all these forks that are, that have been going on are sort of like clearing out that debris at the bottom? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'd be happy to say it. I think that the lack of Roger and Jihan's focus on Bitcoin has made the market appreciate it at double of what it was without their presence or with their presence, rather. I don't know if, if you've ever been in a startup and you have a, a disgruntled employee and they own a de minimis amount of the shares, but they hold up every single board meeting and every single vote and every single action you want to take. The lack of their presence in and of itself makes the company stronger. I think it's just uh, also fatigue with the overall theme. The first fork was preceded by three months of doom and doom and doom and nothing happened. And then when nothing happened and, you know, SegWit activated and Bitcoin Cash forked off and the market dropped the price of Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin continued and then started appreciating it was all bets are off. Once the stories of doom were completely discredited by reality, things started moving again. But I think that story gets repeated. And every time it gets repeated, the expectations of doom are less and less credible. And the time to recovery is shorter and shorter and shorter until eventually people could be forking off every day. And, you know, they fork off and nobody cares. I think the price increase in Bitcoin has far more to do with Ethereum than Bitcoin, um, which is that all these projects doing these insane token sales for like crazy amounts of money, once they have their Ether, what do they diversify into? And a lot of these people have massive uh, aversions to the stock market or traditional assets. And for them, diversification means converting a, a large chunk of that into Bitcoin. And I think that every time you see a large ICO, you're seeing a large chunk of economic value converting back into Bitcoin or staying in Bitcoin or diversifying into Bitcoin in the same way that back in 2013, sure, Litecoin was interesting. It had script. The block times were faster. But basically, people needed something that was different than Bitcoin that had enough volumes for them to diversify and trade against. I think that all of these token sales in Ethereum that are going on are basically seeing Bitcoin as the not Ether Thing that they can put money into that at least doesn't 100% correlate with the price performance of Bitcoin and in some way they perceive as being more stable and so they're parking assets there. Which certainly speaks to the whole reserve currency store value story that the digital gold aspect of Bitcoin that some people are convinced is its true nature but we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, the kind of interface token, it's been that way since the beginning, but the question has always been, does that wind up getting displaced? Does someone come along who does it better? And it seems like the answer at this point is a resounding no, is that even, you know, attempts to fork it or kind of whatever else, it still doesn't really matter. That early advantage is still really, really working in Bitcoin's favor, even to this point. 
Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by EasyDNS.com. EasyDNS is the only domain provider that takes Bitcoin and Ethereum. Blockchain startups are challenging the status quo. When yours attracts attention, you need to know that your domains will be safe. EasyDNS loves blockchain, and they're a stickler for due process. As a valued client, you are leading a revolution that Easy wants to be a part of. So, when it's time to register or renew your domains, remember, EasyDNS is the official domain provider for letstalkbitcoin.com and a great place to be. Back to the show. So first we had forks of Bitcoin with things like Feathercoin and Litecoin, and then we had tokens built on top, and then we had ICOing of those tokens. And now we have these spin-off projects, with the first one being Bitcoin Cash. Was Bitcoin Cash really the first spin-off that actually honored the... Uh... No. Yeah, I didn't think it was. Clams was the first one, I think. That's right. And there's been a couple of others that have done some kind of airdrop related to the Bitcoin blockchain. So I guess the difference is an airdrop versus like just taking the ledger as, as a whole, right? Because the airdrop thing, you're right, that's been happening since back in, I guess, 2013 or 2014. But the Bitcoin Cash thing of actually honoring that and not having any sort of different balance information, I think that that's a little bit newer. So we saw it with Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Cash is still puttering along, but I don't really think it's done anything that interesting to me recently. Oh, I think it's still doing something very interesting. Which is what? Oh, it just did uh, 80, 80 some blocks in 10 minutes um, <laughs> today. And it's continuing to demonstrate this. We've talked about this before, but this emergency difficulty adjustment that was done with all the good intent in the world and with completely naive attitude towards the fact that in a competitive environment, things like that will be gamed and you have to be very careful. And so as a result, the, the emergency difficulty adjustment is, has continued to be blatantly and ruthlessly gamed by the miners at huge expense to the credibility and validity and viability of Bitcoin Cash, just as we predicted. And it's still happening today. Basically, Bitcoin Cash is non-functional as a system primarily because of that one tweak. So really big unintended consequence of a really well-meaning design change that shows why certain things, the way they balanced out in Bitcoin, there was a reason why they worked so well and fiddle with those values at peril. Well, Andreas, you may be interested in Bitcoin Gold, which takes the same value proposition as Bitcoin Cash, but fixes exactly those problems. Mm. Actually, I think that uh, somebody must have been listening to that episode where, uh, Jonathan, you were talking about the project. I forget which one it was. Was it uh, Digibyte? Digibyte, yeah, with, with DigiShield. Yeah, with DigiShield. Right. And so it sounds like they've come up with something very similar um, that has a difficulty adjustment every block. Other than that, it seems like it has the normal kind of SegWit characteristics and the two to four megabyte effective block uh, with the you know one megabyte uh, actual headline number block. And then the other thing that they're attempting to do here is make it so that people are mining with GPUs rather than ASICs because they're changing the hashing algorithm. And so there have been some people who have said the problem with Bitcoin Cash is that you know, they didn't do this. And outside of that, everything would be great. So I don't know if everything's going to be great, but that is kind of the headline attempt with Bitcoin Gold. So I didn't hear anything about Bitcoin Gold until about three days ago. Um, and I had uh, gotten back from the fire and was like, what the heck is Bitcoin Gold? Why are all these exchanges talking about this? And I actually still don't know why all these exchanges are talking about this outside of perhaps being scared about getting, you know, wanged with PR. Nobody knows. I mean, no, that's the thing about this project is that it started off as a rumor 
And then that rumor was validated by a few people who said, no, yeah, it's actually happening, but it's happening at a secret block with a secret mining operation and won't tell you until after it's been mined. I don't even know when it forked. A couple days ago. But they don't even have code yet is the thing. I thought that's why there are like all these exchanges and stuff are saying, well, we plan on supporting it or we don't, but we can't do it yet because they haven't released the code. They haven't released final code yet. Yeah, it's it's final code yet. I am actually on their GitHub right now. And the repo is BTC GPU. And I'm looking at it. And they do have code. Uh, I don't know if it's final code, but they they have something here. And one of the other things that kind of jumps out, which is not on their website at all when I went to look, uh, is that this has a large pre-mine in it. Yeah. It's sort of like Bitcoin Cash, except they were like, well, it's Bitcoin Cash, but we're going to give ourselves 100,000 of these coins before we actually release the software. And that isn't disclosed anywhere on the Bitcoin Gold website or any of this other stuff. So it's, I mean, like, and this actually is not as far down as the rabbit hole goes, right? There's actually a Bitcoin Silver that, again, may or may not be a joke. And it takes what Bitcoin Gold has done. And it says, well, the problem with Bitcoin Gold is that they're not doing 30-second blocks. They're doing 10-minute blocks. How could you take such an antiquated thing as that? If we're going to fix this stuff, we might as well fix everything. Yeah. (laughs) Is this just our future? Should we just be prepared to constantly be learning about new forks that don't really matter to us but that we can somehow get money from or is this all just as illusory as it appears no we, we, we won't need to to learn about all of these things because they will be increasingly inconsequential until eventually the brave announcement of a new bitcoin fork falls completely flat and nobody even covers it because it's boring and people presume automatically that it's going to fail and make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think we're going to see shorter and shorter and shorter rounds until eventually people will be announcing these and and nobody will even pay attention. It's almost like trying to say, oh, how many ICOs are happening today? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Whatever. Many. That's definitely what happened with me with the altcoins. Like, yeah, there was just a period of time where I was trying to keep up with it. And then I just stopped. I'm like, forget this. (laughs) But do you guys think maybe it'll end up getting collapsed back into one thing? No, it doesn't need to. I mean, why would any of these things collapse? Chains could die, right? If they're might if they don't have enough support, right? In theory. It's it's really an in theory thing. If you look for chains that have died, it's very hard to find them. Like died in in a way where the token goes away. Very hard. People might stop trading it actively and might get dropped off all of the known exchanges. They might stop developing it. That happens all the time. Like that's not like there's no there's no death state for cryptocurrency, really. It's just like it gets cheap enough that someone can buy it and pump it. Again, what this is demonstrating is the fundamental mismatch between our understanding of currency based on tradition and the new world of cryptocurrency. In our understanding of currency up to now, it was a zero-sum game between 194 currencies. It really mattered who else was out there and what competition there was. And there was a fixed-size pie that had to be split between these flag currencies and flag coins. And now we're in a new world. And in this new world, there will be hundreds of thousands of cryptocurrencies and you won't know any of them and it won't matter. But that doesn't mean the you have to compete or it matters who is the winner because there is no winner because it's not a winner takes all. It's not a zero sum game anymore. I think it's it's a bit like asking the question, how many bloggers can there ever be? 
when you come from a journalistic background where you're used to a city having two headline newspapers and a country having you know five headline newspapers and then you're suddenly thrust into this world where bloggers can be anyone i i actually think the press secretary for the president recently said it's almost as if anyone with a computer can be a journalist and she said that as if she was surprised yeah, well, yeah, actually, <laughs> welcome to the internet, ma'am. We've been doing it for 25 years. <laughs> it's nice to see you uh, joining us finally. That's exactly the same thing that's happening with currencies. People have trouble reconciling the idea that since anyone can launch one, it doesn't really matter if they do. So in a practical sense, assuming for a second that we are seeing the start of something that will be like the altcoin boom of 2013, 2014, that will be like the ICO boom of this year and of 2014, we're going to see a lot of these things, except really it's going to come to people who actually already own Bitcoin. And that's really the thing that you need to do rather than buying it as you have in the past. For people who just buy Bitcoin and are just sitting on it in paper wallets or in secured wallets or, or whatever, they really don't have to do anything at all. They just have to sit there and wait for like something to actually become valuable enough to care about, right? That's that's the really interesting part of this. So what happened when the last two drops were announced, you know, with Bitcoin Cash and then with Bitcoin Gold, I think with Bitcoin Cash, there was a lot of confusion. It was the first time and people were like, okay, how do I take part in this? And then they suddenly started hearing the message, the message, your keys, your Bitcoin, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, get off custodial exchanges, get your own wallet, manage your own keys, and then you can be part of this. Otherwise, the exchange may simply choose not to give you your, your well-earned bounty, right? And this had, uh, as a really sudden and weird effect, was it pushed a lot of people to withdraw money from exchanges and hold it. Now, I think in the run-up to Bitcoin Gold, we saw another one. Uh, of those. And I think we're going to see it for Segwit2x, which is people are going to, even if they don't believe this is going to be successful, even if they, they think Segwit2x will not succeed in, in doing anything more than Bitcoin Cash did, they still want the free coins. So why the hell not? And, and that means a lot more people are going to try and set up their own wallets, gain independence and autonomy and control over their own keys. And ironically, the other thing that does is all the people who may have been diversified in alts and ICOs and tokens and whatever say, okay, hang on a second, just for this week, I'm going to sell all of that stuff and buy into Bitcoin so that I can maximize my bounty allocation. And I think that's driving some of the price increase and some of the movement from alts into Bitcoin. It's the fear of missing out the airdrop. Airdrop FOMO. <laughs> the excitement about altcoins, the excitement about stuff that's other than Bitcoin, things that are smaller than Bitcoin and so have a greater potential to kind of expand has really always been something that at least since Bitcoin became the big cryptocurrency when that actually, you know, when that actually started to matter that Bitcoin has largely missed out on, you know, it, it gets used as the interface by which people get into these things, but it has never directly benefited from that effect itself outside of kind of the really early miner stage. So I think that's a really kind of exciting prospect that might make Bitcoin a bit more of an exciting purchase. Uh, simply because now it seems to be throwing what look a lot like, you know, cryptocurrency dividends, if you want to call them that. Like Bitcoin didn't change. This is consumer behavior around Bitcoin that sees this as a way to differentiate. And so even though Bitcoin itself has not changed at all, it's gaining this kind of new thing that previously was not available. Well, I, I think it's more like Ethereum went, hey, bro, look, I can launch 100 shit coins a day. And then Bitcoin went, hey, hold my beer. <laughs> this is just an effectuation of Blockstream not being able to get sidechains through. 
if you, if you recall, Ethereum launched itself at least as an idea, and then started getting so much perception that even before Blockstream was incorporated, they needed to throw out there that they were working on side chains, just so that too much of the FOMO didn't escape from Bitcoin. And their proposal was that side chains would be an extensibility layer to experiment and be more risky on Bitcoin, and you could do it with your Bitcoin rather than needing to build your own system or your own dynamic. It would be a way for Bitcoiners to get exposure to a more experimental and risky network that their Bitcoin could still work on. And they've never done it. It's three years. They were ineffectual. They couldn't get it done. Maybe they will get it done. But the market's tired of waiting. The market won't wait. The market hasn't wait. And you look at ERC-20 being the killer app in Ethereum. And now pressing fork is the killer app in Bitcoin. And I think both of those are just metastasizations of the lack of any semblance of a sidechain being effectuated or framework for sidechains to be effectuated in Bitcoin. So any buildup of pressure that's being constrained by the inherently conservative nature of Bitcoin's consensus algorithm and development model that that forces people not to make big radical changes. And then the leftover innovation, the innovation that can't be held back, just kind of bursts out of the seams and ends up spilling over into either ERC-20 tokens or a now airdrop forks. Yeah, I I think ERC-20 is a way to do a project that you couldn't get a BIP implemented for. And I think that a Bitcoin fork is when you just want to fire the core developers and be your own developer group. So it's it's a consensus fork on the developers you choose to acknowledge as maintaining core, whereas an ERC-20 issuance is a framework where you just realize you'll never get your BIP through. I mean, just look at the entire show that uh, Justin Newton had to go through a couple years ago just for trying to get merchant payment integration in. There was this whole, you know, conspiracy theory that it would be the death nail of Bitcoin. So, you know, anytime any real Bitcoin uh, company wants to do anything truly innovative, they either have to spend three months eating dirt or they just do it in Ethereum. It's been interesting watching the very continued visceral response. I think one of the last topics we talked about was how BitPay was getting a lot of flack because they hadn't yet watched walked away from SegWit2x. And I checked out the Bitcoin subreddit this morning and same thing. It's like there are five or six posts that are up there that are PSAs about why BitPay is terrible or I just canceled my account and stuff like that. And, you know, like I can appreciate that perspective, but Stephen Pear, like they're good players in the space. I really like they might not be getting into kind of the politics of it, but it really seems like that if anybody was going to be able to take a stand on something and not be, you know, burned at the stake for it, it would be BitPay. And it doesn't seem like they have that luxury at all. So there's not a single company or person in, in Bitcoin who is not at some point scapegoated enormously by the circular firing squad. I think that's just in the nature, potentially because a lot of the early people who were most attracted to the idea of Bitcoin also had a high tendency to subscribe to conspiracy theories. There's a lot of suspicion and paranoia in this space that anybody who has a different opinion is doing so because of ulterior profit motives, uh, being bought off by governments, being a, a stooge for intelligence agencies, wanting to undermine the great pure project and all of that. So this kind of purity of ideology and the litmus tests and the loyalty oaths and the loyalty tests it is, I mean, in some ways, 
it's part and parcel of any revolution. The moment the revolution is over, the counter-revolution starts from the inside, and then comes the purge. Well, are we to the purge yet? <laughs> oh, we are. Absolutely, we are to the purge. How many very, very well-known Bitcoiners who have done quite a lot of work building and educating and, and growing this ecosystem have, have been turned into absolute pariahs? I mean, even Gavin Andreessen at this point is effectively excommunicated. Yeah, no doubt about that. There are people who it looks like have power in this space, but in reality, it seems like very few people actually have have you know enough power to make anything more than like a PR splash. And the PR splash, you then hope gets enough support. But it seems like, for the most part, that's not really working. <laughs> and yet, every 10 minutes, the very same consensus rules pull together the entire network. And the whole thing chugs along. It turns out it really is enormously resistant to, to change and manipulation. And that is the enduring characteristic of this technology. At least this is the instance of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Episode 346 was sponsored by EasyDNS, the official domain provider for Let's Talk Bitcoin since the beginning. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and featured music by Jared Rubens. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.